Jesus said, if a shepherd has a hundred sheep and one of them is lost, does he not leave the ninety-nine behind in the mountains to go look for the one who went astray? Would you all please pray with me? May the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. A couple years ago, I was in Raleigh, North Carolina uh, on a mission trip. Mission trip. We had taken about 50 kids uh, from the area where I was serving uh, on a mission trip to Raleigh, and there were probably about 10 adults who had given up a week of their time. They had taken vacation from work to not go on vacation, but to drive down to Raleigh, North Carolina for a mission trip. And so we had finally arrived, and we had sent the kids to bed. They were supposed to go to bed, but if you've ever been on a mission trip before, when you tell kids to go to bed, that's the last thing they do. So they were all running around, and the adults were gathered around a table with the, the site administrator. We said, you adults need to figure out where each of your kids are going to be going this week. Because there were three sites that they could go to. The first site uh, was sort of modest home repair for people who lived in the economically uh, worst part of town. You know, they use a hammer, maybe paintbrushes, that sort of thing. Um, so you want to have able-bodied kids, some kids who are going to be responsible because they're going to need some dangerous tools. So we need kids to go do home repair. The second group is going to be going to a retirement home retirement home. They, this group, would be going to the retirement home to spend time in fellowship and in entertainment and help feed those who live in the retirement home who could not feed themselves any longer. So you need some mature kids because they're going to be doing some work that might be difficult for kids if they're younger. And the third group, uh, there's a daycare program, a very, very low-cost daycare program designed for the parents who cannot afford to stay home with their kids during the summer. It's a daycare program where they, you basically will help watch kids all day while their parents are working. So we did a lottery system. We randomly assigned all the kids to their different groups, and we tried to make sure that the bullies were away from the ones who got picked on and all that sort of stuff. And then we, we finally figured out all the groups, and we're getting ready to leave the room. And the administrator said, wait, you forgot one thing. All of you adults need to decide where you're going to go tomorrow as well. Now, friends, because I am faithful, because I am holy, because I am merciful, because I'm full of love, I decided, you know what, I'm just going to go last. I'll let the other adults who gave up their time decide where they want to go, and I'll take the short straw. And you know where I got sent? To the glorified daycare program. <laughs> I got sent to watch kids. So in the morning, I got a 12-passenger van. It was me and 11 youth from my church. And we drove to this site. We met at a museum in downtown Raleigh, North Carolina. And there were about 50 kids who were being watched by us. And the, the other administrators sort of said, hey, here's the deal. You go into the museum. The only rule is you all have to be back here at 3 o'clock. So have fun. That is not a lot of instruction, okay? So I pulled our youth aside, and I struck them with the fear of God. Do not lose your children. If you lose your children, I will tell your parents that you lost a child. And I broke them up into groups and sort of had two by two. And I said, you all are responsible for these kids. And you all are responsible for these kids. And I said, okay, be back here at 3 o'clock. And I sent them all away. Which, upon further reflection, was not a very good idea. Because when 3 o'clock rolled around, I was standing in the foyer with all of the youth and all the kids. And I decided, okay, I should do a head count. One, two, three, four, five. I got all the way through and I thought... Maybe I should count them one more time, just to be safe. One, and upon the third count, I realized that we had one kid missing. One. I thought 
uh, I've got three choices. I can either send all of the kids and all the youth back into the museum to find the one who's lost at the risk of losing even more. I can just tell the administrator that I thought we only had 49, <laughs> cut my losses and call it a day. Or I could leave all of them behind and I could be the one to go and look for the one lost sheep. Three choices. Send them all in, pretend like it never happened, or leave them all behind and go do it myself. Jesus predicts his passion for a second time. The Son of Man must be handed over, he must be killed, and in three days rise again. And in response to the Lord's declaration, again, this isn't the first time the disciples have heard it. It's the second time the disciples hear what must happen, that they respond to it by having a lively discussion, what we might otherwise call a fight. They want to know who's going to be in charge, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom next to Jesus. And why do they respond this way? Because the disciples are a bunch of idiots. Jesus has told them that he, the Lord of lords, Son of Man and Son of God is going to die. And they apparently can't stand this idea, so they quickly jump to another conclusion. Okay, that's fine. You think you have to die. That's whatever. Can we just talk about who's next in command? Can we finally figure out that when you get your throne, who's going to be next to you? And Jesus responds with one of the best theological punches in the Bible. Whoever wants to be first must be last. Whoever is the least among you will be the greatest. It's like Jesus wants the disciples to get it through their thick skulls that the work of God in the world is not done by winning, but by losing. God loves taking the last and the least and making them the objects of transformation. It happens again and again. God has a knack for making something out of nothing, which, if we're honest with ourselves, we kind of hate. We kind of hate that. Maybe... Maybe hate is too strong of a word. We can all be on board with Jesus' project of being for the last, the least, the lost, the little, and the dead. But then we struggle with that idea because we don't like seeing ourselves in any of those categories. We don't want to be the last, the least, the little, the lost, and the dead. We, like the disciples before us, we would rather be first and great and found and big and alive. You think about it, even the way we practice religion, it kind of is part of this myth of progress. We preach and teach a version of religion in which we can always do more, we can always earn more, we can always find more. We're consumed by what we consume, and what we consume most of all are these fabricated versions of our possible future selves. There's a reason that every year on the New York Times bestseller list that most of the books at the top are self-help books. How to earn that extra $100,000. How to lose that extra 10 pounds. It's what we want more than anything else. And there really isn't anything wrong with wanting to be better. It's just that in spite of our desires for approval or change or growth, the work of the Lord is different. Jesus saves losers and only losers. Jesus raises the dead and only the dead. Jesus finds the lost, and only the lost. The last, the least, the little, the dead, the lost, they receive more of Jesus' joy than all of the winners of the world. And we can't stand it. We just can't stand it. Which brings us to the parable. Hey, what do you all think? If a shepherd has a hundred sheep and one of them goes missing, 
Won't he leave 99 behind to go find the one that's gone? I stood by the main entrance of that museum and I had a choice to make. I was in charge. I had to do something. And I'm a pastor. Now I wear a stole on Sunday, so I figured if I'm going to do anything, I should probably act like Jesus. I was thinking about the parable. So I left all the kids behind and I went by myself in the museum to find the one that was lost. I didn't leave until I said to all of them, don't you, any of you move from this spot. We've already lost one. I can't lose anymore. So I went in. I started looking through the museum. About 15 minutes, I'd run through all the exhibits. I'd looked under tables. I'd peek behind curtains. I mean, I was doing everything. I started pulling strangers to my side. I said, have you found this kid? He's seven years old. He's about this tall. And I looked, and I looked, and I could not find him anywhere. And I was about to give up. And I was passing by the gift shop. And I happened to look in the gift shop. And there, in the corner of the gift shop, holding a book and reading it to himself, was the missing sheep. <laughs> He'd just been sitting there, happy as a clam, reading that book all to himself. And I'm grateful that there was a partition between us. Because if he had been right next to me, I would have grabbed him by the ear and dragged him outside. But instead, I had to call myself, and I found him, and I said, I'm so happy that I found you. <laughs> and so I helped him up, and we started making our way toward the main entrance. And it was at that precise moment that the fire alarm went off. So the boy and I ran from the nearest exit got outside, and hundreds of other people were running toward all the exits because a fire had started in the museum. So I run outside. I've got the kid who was lost. I think, okay, well, we're on the opposite side of the museum, so this is fine. We're just going to walk around the building, and then we'll go find everyone else, and we'll go home. And of course, when I got there, everyone was gone. Because <laughs> that's the thing about going after one lost sheep. You know what happens when you leave 99 behind? They get lost, too. It took me an hour to find everyone, to gather them in from the random places they had run around the property of the museum, to do the headcount again one last time. And I decided, I made a vow that day, I'm going to leave the shepherding business to Jesus. <laughs> this is a strange story, just like all the parables. It points at something greater than the sum of its parts. The lost sheep declares, oddly enough, that we are not saved in being found, that we are saved in being lost. We are saved in being lost. Because unlike a novice pastor, even if a hundred sheep get lost, that will not be a problem for our good shepherd. Our Lord rejoices in and is in the business of finding the lost. And here's maybe the craziest thing of all. The lost sheep does nothing to be found. It doesn't say, hey, I'm over here behind the rock. Says, hey, I'm over here in the corner reading the book. The sheep does nothing to be found. No amount of good works, no faithful prayer, no monetary offering to the church, none of that stuff. It does nothing to be found. The sheep does nothing except hang around in its lostness. And to make things all the crazier, a lost sheep in all reality is a dead one. Without a shepherd, the sheep has not a chance in the world. So we might love the idea of always doing more, of finding that one right book or that one right list or that one right program that will finally fix all of the problems in our life. But the parable of the lost sheep is a deadly reminder for all of us that we don't need to do anything to get God to love us. We don't have to do anything to get God to find us. We don't have to do anything to get God to even forgive us. God is determined to move even before we do.
That's why we say Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. Not after we repented from our sins, but while we were sinners, Christ died for us. It is our lostness that is our ticket to the supper of the Lamb. The parables of Jesus, though they vary in form and function, they all kind of say one thing. God acts first. God acts definitively and decisively without conditions. There might be one condition. And if there is one at all, it is this. We need only admit that we are lost. That's it. The only thing we have to do is admit that we are lost. That we are all lost. We're lost. We're lost in our ambitions. We're lost in our sins. We're lost in our judgments and our prejudices. We're all lost. Some of us are even lost in our faith. I don't know if you all know this, but last Saturday, a young man walked into a synagogue and he started shooting. He killed one and he injured three others. And when these things happen, which they happen all the time now, we are quick to point out how isolated the attacker was or how damaging his ideology was that led toward violence. But this particular young man, the one who walked into a synagogue last Saturday, he was a Christian. And not just a Christian, he was a faithful Christian. And not just a faithful Christian, he was a Presbyterian. He was a Presbyterian who went to church every single Sunday. He published a manifesto after he attacked. A manifesto for why he believed the Jews needed to be killed. And you know where he got his defense from? The stuff he learned in church on Sunday. The Jews killed Jesus, so I should go kill some Jews. We are all lost. Even us good Christians are lost. Now, of course, that example is a horrible example. It's a very, you know, extreme example. And yet all of us, particularly when we don't want to admit it, we are all lost. All of us have done something wrong. All of us have avoided doing something right. We are all lost. And strangely enough, that is the best news of all. You know why? It's good news because when God is given a world full of losers, a world full of people who are lost in their own journeys, a world full of people lost in our own sins, that's just fine because lostness is what God is all about. We may be determined to do whatever we want to do. We can try all we want to save ourselves, but it will largely only result in us becoming more lost. God's determination will always exceed our own. God is determined with an unshakable fervor to raise the dead and find the lost. We can all be better. We, of course, can all be better. There are things all of us could do that would make our lives and the lives of people around us better. And I don't mean to you know, hate on these self-help programs or anything like that, but we are a people who have fallen for the greatest trap in the world. We believe, foolishly, that God is going to close the door in our faces unless we do enough. That God is going to say goodbye to us. That God is just going to go on unless we keep looking for God. We are a people who are moved by guilt. You have not done enough. You have not done enough. You have not done enough. When the truth is entirely different, God is not waiting around for the sheep to find him. God is on the look for the sheep. God needs us only to admit that we are lost, that we are dead in our sins. Because when we see the condition of our condition, 
Then we begin to experience the joy of having no power over ourselves to save ourselves or convince anyone else that we are worth saving or finding. And even if we can't admit that we are lost, the good news is that the shepherd looks for us anyway. It is a beloved parable. This image of Jesus returning to the fold with the one lost sheep over his shoulders. But it is another reminder for us that our whole lives are forever out of our hands. That we really are dead. That we really are lost. And if we are ever to live again, it will be because of the grace of a shepherd named Jesus. Who will never, ever stop looking for us. No matter what. So I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. Amen.